I'm going to invite Jeremy up to read our scripture passage, which today is Joshua 5, verses 2 to 12. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt... All the men of military age died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal, To this day, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So in my life, I have had a number of different jobs. My mum used to say that I was flighty, And that once um, I got bored um, with something, I'd move on to the next thing. And I actually disagree because in my younger days, I was focused on um, playing in my band. And my various jobs were just needed to pay the bills. So, you know, there's a difference between flighty and, you know, um, and being bored than actually um, not focusing Now, one of my many jobs um, I had was in an animal park, feeding the animals and mucking out their enclosures. 
Now, as you all know, I love animals, so this was not a chore to me. And while I was working there, I was actually pregnant with my son, Michael. Now, I don't often talk about this time because personally, it was actually a really stressful and difficult time for me. But being with the animals and mucking them out really helped me. It was a stress reliever. It was a time of calm and of peace for me. It was like a wee haven, a sanctuary. And I just loved it. And I think within my body, I think something must have happened physiologically, you know, when I was with the animals, you know, when I was feeding them, when I was mucking them out. You know, that the feel-good, you know, the endorphins and the feel-good hormones must have kicked into action then. And I'm sure that that must have transferred over and been felt by Michael in my womb. And when he was inside me as a developing baby, that, and he smelled the animals, he must just have been like filled with this wave of peace and calm and serenity. And I often think that this experience marked him. For ever since he was tiny, he's loved animals. He said his first memory was like uh, crawling about after the cat, you know, that he was just like a cat. And he's always wanted to be around animals. He's only ever wanted to work with them, to be a farmer. And as a wee child, he was obsessed with cattle and then horses. He could tell you all the names of different kinds of cows and then different kinds of horses. And then he could tell you about different behaviours of them. Oh, he was, he was obsessed. And it wasn't just an interest. He was so good with the animals too. He understood them. And I think this is, this is a mark upon him. Even before birth, he was marked. Our shared love of animals goes beyond genetics. And, though those, and through those circumstances and that shared love, Michael was marked. And as marked as my son. In today's passage, the Israelite men are being marked as God's people through their circumcision. In verse 2, God says to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Why are they being circumcised? Well, as a celebration, They've arrived in Canaan, the promised land, as a sacramental rite, perhaps, before the first Passover in the promised land. Perhaps they are being prepared for the battle ahead. But mainly, I think, they're being circumcised because in their circumcision, the people are being reminded of their covenantal relationship with God. 
Physical circumcision occurs in the Pentateuch in Genesis 17 and 34 and also Exodus 4, verses 24 to 26. For Abraham, it becomes a sign of his covenant with God. For the Shechemites, it is a demonstration of identity with the sons of Israel. And these texts agree in associating Israelite circumcision with the community of Israel and its divine covenants. Now, when I was looking into this week's passage, um, there seems to be some disagreements between commentators about the use of the word again. Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Some have suggested that the command to circumcise again may reflect the concern that until that present time, Israelites had only been circumcised according to the Egyptian method. Now, I look too much into this this week, friends. I can tell you too much about circumcision that I will not tell you here. Like, and let's just say it's just as well that the, the Canaanites were really afraid, you know, of the Israelites, um, so as that, you know, they left them alone um, as so as they were able to recover. Um, because, oh, yes. Aye. So I'm not going to go into the details, you know, and uh, the details between the differences. Um, but these commentators suggest that, that, what them, that this implies, this again, that Joshua had perhaps performed an earlier circumcision. Yeah, I don't even want to know how that would have happened. But, however, I don't think that actually marries with the text. Because we're told in verses 4 to 7, Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and those were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So these men who now stood with Joshua in Canaan, who had crossed the river Jordan and into the promised land, were uncircumcised. The earlier generation of men, all who had come out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea with Moses, they had been circumcised and they were all dead. So the generation who was born in the desert had not been circumcised and this, this generation who now stood before Joshua. Now, the text doesn't explain why they hadn't been. It could simply be that, you know, it could, but it would seem that the rite had not been practiced for 40 years. The closest we get to a reason is in verse 6, where it says, Since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them they would not see the land 
he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. That wilderness period, which we can read about in Numbers 14, was the time of unbelief and judgment. It was a time for the old Israel to die and perish. The original generation doomed herself to wander 40 years and perish in the wilderness due to their unbelief and their disobedience. Some commentators therefore infer that the sign of circumcision was withdrawn by God during the wilderness period because of his displeasure. But I think that that goes beyond the text and we can't be sure that it was removed by divine direction. But in Genesis 17 verse 14 it says, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. Um, He has broken my covenant. So in light of this, we could say that Israel was cut off from God due to their unbelief. They They were God's people, and yet they were not. They remained object of God's care because he provided manna for them in the desert. But there was but there was no sign that they were his. No physical sign that they were his. In this text, at Joshua's hand, this new generation are being marked again as God's people. And then we get to another difference between the generations highlighted. The Exodus generation relied upon God to provide for them. God sent them manna daily. In verse 11 to 12, it says, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would have this land. Now, the Exodus generation did not listen to God's voice, so, um, and so they could not enter the land that God had promised them. But this new generation, they had obeyed and they have now entered it. They've entered the land, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. And so they could now eat the produce of the land. They no longer need to be sustained in the desert. They no longer need the manna. And this is a significant moment for the Israelites. God has fulfilled his promise. They are now in the promised land. And so this has to be marked. They have to be marked. And their circumcision is the mark, the reminder of their covenantal relationship with God. And it's important that they're reminded of this, marked by this relationship, as they will soon be going into battle. And they need to be strengthened and encouraged. It was God who brought them into the promised land, and it will be God who gives them the whole of the promised land. They are God's people.
Now, Christians are not circumcised as a sign of being God's people. Many people will be saying, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> and as a sign of our belief, we are baptized into the family of God, engrafted into the family of God. And as I was preparing for this week, I wondered how we are visibly, are we visibly different from the world? How are we marked as gods in a secular world? Um, do we, is our baptism visible to people? You know, especially in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. This week, I have been really disturbed, actually, by the treatment of Kate Forbes, who has put herself forward for the leadership of the SNP. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not um, a supporter of the SNP or Kate Forbes personally, um, but, it's, you know, it's been really disturbing, actually, to just see all this unfold much has been made about our Christian faith and her biblical views on sexual morality and family life. And our biblical views as well about identity. Critics have said because of our faith and our personal desire to live by God's standards and not the world's, that she's not fit to lead the country. And as a result, some people have withdrawn their support of Kate Forbes. Now, the enemy really has been causing trouble and mischief within the media and within the SNP and within the nation, I think. Kate Forbes herself has said that she would uphold the laws of the land and defend the rights of everyone, especially minority groups. But this doesn't seem to be enough for people. Now, as I said, I'm not a supporter of the SNP, but, you know, as a person, you know, uh, living in Scotland, I personally would prefer to know that the person leading our country was a person of faith who made decisions with integrity instead of, you know, some of our politicians who seem to think it's okay to tell lies and, um, you know, just be... You know, making decisions based on whatever the flavour of the month is. And the reaction to Kate Forbes has highlighted to me that actually we now are in a post-Christian society. When I heard this before, you know, over the past few years, I was like, no, that's not right. That can't be right. But it is. We are in a post-Christian society where the majority of people are unchurched. And, you know, a generation does not know who God is. Actually, more than probably one generation does not know who God is. And so this then can mean that it's more difficult for us to actively share our faith. You know, and... Just like the early Christians, you know, me, you know, they had, you know, many were hostile towards them. Many now are hostile towards us. And in the future, 
we may actually be persecuted for speaking our truth, for speaking out to defend God, to, to defend our beliefs. And I think it's such a shame because God is so misjudged. People don't want to know, you know God because they think God judges them, that God's full of anger and wrath. They question why God would allow so much suffering in the world, not understanding that because God gave us free will, it's us, us humans, who cause so much suffering in the world. They don't realize that God is love. You know, we have kids who come to the youth club who say that, you know, whenever it comes to our time for our talk, that they don't want to know about God. No, they don't want to know about Jesus. They don't want to pray. They don't want anything to do with it. And they're very quite, they're vocal and they're quite, you know, they're quite strong in their, um, in their belief. But they respond when we get alongside them. When we let them know that they're loved, that they're cherished, that they're precious, that they're valued. Because we have a God who came down from heaven to live among us, alongside us in the form of Jesus. Jesus who grew up in a family, understanding what all that entails. Jesus who walked beside friends. Jesus who got alongside the most vulnerable and marginalized in society and raised them up. Jesus who got alongside the broken and healed and restored them. Jesus who raised the dead to life and who himself defeated the grave to rise again. Jesus who died to cleanse us of our sins and bring us back to our Father God. And it was love. It was love for his creation and his people that God did this, that God came to earth in the form of Jesus. It was love. It was with love that Jesus lived and Jesus died. And it was with love that Jesus rose again. It was through love that Jesus healed and transformed life. And it's love that our world so desperately, desperately needs now. And even though it seems it's becoming increasingly hostile to us, we can't retreat from the world. For Jesus commissioned us to go and make disciples. Jesus told us we have to love our neighbor with all our heart, our soul and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In order to do this, we have to be able to tell people about the life-transforming love of Jesus. We have to tell people of our amazing God who loved us so much that he came down to earth to live among us, who loved us so much that he died on the cross to cleanse us and to reclaim us. The enemy wants nothing more than for Christians 
to be silent, to be frightened into retreat, to be ashamed to be called Christians. Our churches, and I'm going to say probably the Church of Scotland especially, our churches are filled with people who keep quiet about their faith. They think that their actions are enough. And yes, you know, they are are good people who give their time, who do help others, and they do good work. But they aren't actively saying why they're doing it and who they're doing it for, that they're doing it for the Lord. Now, I used to be one of the Christians back in the day. I would volunteer. I would help others. I would do loads of stuff in the church. You know, I would do stuff out in the community, thinking that that was showing my faith, my love for Jesus. But plenty of non-Christians are doing that. They're volunteering in their community. They're doing good works because they're good, kind humans. People need to know why we do what we do. People need to know who we are serving. That we serve the Lord our God and that we are his and that all we do is for him. The church, and I'm talking about the wider church here, is in decline because people are not talking about the love of Jesus to those outside of the church. And outside the church, they're getting caught up in all these other things about identity and about, you know, relationships. But actually, the first thing that we need to let people know is this, that God loves them. That Jesus came here for them. That's what we need. And then once we have shared our story, once we have shared how much Jesus loves us, how Jesus has transformed our own lives, once we have introduced people to the Lord, we can then just let the Lord do the rest. All we have to do is love people and show them that love of the Lord. Because People are not sharing that life-transforming love with family, with friends, with work colleagues, people they meet when they're out and about. And mission, you know, we can have all the mission plans in the world, but mission is useless unless people know why they're doing it and for whom they're doing it. Mission is about bringing more people to know the Lord. Not to make our churches, you know, big and full, but to change lives. And to change lives, we need to be inviting people to come and join us, to join us in our church. And I know I say it all the time, but we do need to be sharing our testimonies. And it gives me so much joy when I hear about all that we're sharing. The early church may have been under persecution, but the early church grew 
because people could see the signs and the wonders that were happening in the name of Jesus. They could see the people being healed. They could see that lives were being transformed in the name of Jesus. And so they told others about what they seen and heard. And people then wanted to come and see it and know it for themselves. And even though the world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians, we, friends, can take courage in our baptism. That sacrament that marks us as the Lord's, as a member of the Lord's family, because we are God's people. Let us be proud of it and let us share that. Yes, there'll be people who reject us. There was many who rejected Jesus. But look at the consequences for the Exodus generation when they lived in disbelief and disobedience. They were separated from God and their sons went unmarked. <coughs> so as we seek to bring more people into God's family, to let, let them know that they're loved and cherished and that their lives can be changed. Let us take courage in the vows that we said at our baptism. We confessed our need of God's forgiving grace and we pledged ourselves to glorify God and to love our neighbor. And in our confirmation of our baptismal vows, we promised to be faithful and reading our Bibles, and making time for prayer. To give a portion of our time and talents and money for the church's work in the world. And with the grace of God, publicly professing our loyalty to Jesus, to serve him in our daily work, and to walk in his ways all the days of our lives. These vows strengthen and, and encourage us, for they feed into each other. Because the more time we spend dwelling in God's word and in, and in dwelling in, with him in prayer, that encourages us then to give of our time, our talents and our money. And then with God's grace, we're strengthened to share our love of Jesus, to tell others of how Jesus has transformed our lives and then invite others then too to know him. Invite them to join us here in church. With our baptism, we are marked as God's people and grafted into his family of God. So friends, this week, I encourage you to reflect upon your baptismal vows. And if you've not been baptized but would like to, you can speak to me about it and we can seek to make that happen. And I really would like it that... Um, in the Easter season, that we could perhaps, um, in one of our services, include a reaffirmation of our baptismal vows and celebrate that, be reminded and celebrate that, that we are people marked by God and we are members of God's family. Let us pray. <clears throat> 